a psalm of Asaph. O God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have raised their heads. They lay crafty plans against your people. They consult together against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Let the name of Israel be remembered no more. For they conspire with one accord. Against you they make a covenant. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal and Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur also has joined them, and they are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Do to them as you did to Midian, as to Sisera and Jabin at the river Kishon, who were destroyed at Endor, who became dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, Let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. O oh my God, make them like a whirling dust, like chaff before the wind, as fire consumes the forest, as the flame sets the mountains ablaze, so may you pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your hurricane. Feel their faces with shame that they may seek your name, O oh Lord. Let them be put to shame and dismayed forever. Let them perish in disgrace, that they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that what your son said is absolutely true. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we would beg your assistance as we seek to humble ourselves before your word. Give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. And Father, remind us that something is true, whether we like it or not. That my uh, sense of liking something does not affect, one way or another, the reality of its truthfulness. We ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning we return to a type of psalm that has proven to be problematic for many. Psalm 83 is an imprecatory psalm. The writer prays imprecations or words of judgment against the enemies of God's people. The last half of this prayer is literally a curse. These are not words of blessing and benediction, but rather words of malediction. And so there are some who will say, surely such words have no place in Christian scripture. But as we consider this particular type of psalm, we need to keep two things in mind. First, these words are not here by accident. Psalm 83 is not junior varsity scripture. And the Holy Spirit did not take the afternoon off in which Asaph decided to write Psalm 83. The entire Bible is inspired by God. The words of Psalm 83 are as spirit-breathed as the words of John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Now, there is tension 
in Scripture, but there is never contradiction in Scripture. Let me say that again. There is indeed tension in Scripture, but there is never contradiction in Scripture. By the way, the, the writers of the Bible, not to mention the Holy Spirit, uh, do actually want to treat us as thinking human beings. It's like God expects that wrestling with some of the tension that we find in the text you know, it might actually be good for us. That is, folks who are given the gift of reason, exercising that in a way that is sanctified and in the pursuit of godliness, that might actually be good for us. And God may have actually given us the gifts to be able to do just that. Secondly, we need to hear the New Testament more clearly on this particular front. Folks who struggle with the imprecatory Psalms often point to Jesus, to his life and words and ministry. After all, didn't Jesus say that we're supposed to love our enemies, that we're supposed to pray for those who persecute us? But I would suggest this morning that people that want to read Jesus that way are guilty of a selective reading. They seem to forget that Jesus spoke of hell and money and the danger of money more than anything else in the Gospels. Indeed, in our New Testament reading for this morning, Paul encourages persecuted Christians by reminding them of the coming judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the idea that animates an imprecatory psalm is not a sub-Christian Old Testament concept. Rather, the thing that animates this particular imprecatory psalm is our big idea for this morning. God will defend His covenant God will defend his covenant people. Three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this. Uh, cry for help. Cry for help. Do you note how the psalm begins? Oh God, do not keep silence. Do not hold your peace or be still, oh God. The psalmist needs God to act. The psalmist needs God to speak and in speaking, the psalmist understands that God is doing, that God is acting. The psalmist realizes, I think sometimes as we forget, that there's not a gap or a lag between what God says and what God does. It's true for us, but it's not true for God. That when God says, thus and so is going to happen, thus and so is indeed going to happen. There's no distinction between God's word and when God acts. If God says he will do it, he will do it. And we learn the reason for the psalmist's cry. We learn the reason for the prayer of Asaph. The enemies of God are making an uproar. Those who hate God have raised their heads. In verse 3, he goes on and explains it a little further. It's not just the enemies of God are screaming and roaring against God, but they are now laying crafty plans against God's people. And they consult together against your treasured 
ones. Now let's stop here for just a second because this is too good to just pass by. I, I hope you know this morning that if you are a Christian, you are one of God's treasured ones. That's how the Bible speaks of you. In fact, when the Bible speaks about the church and speaks about those who have been saved by grace through faith, through the atoning death of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, uses language of the church being the wedding gift that God the Father gives to God the Son, because we are indeed the very bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his treasured ones. But let's note as well the way that the psalmist mixes and blends and, as it were, sort of conflates and confuses those who hate God along with those who hate God's people. In other words, he wants us to understand that those two things go hand in hand. That hatred for God is necessarily going to mean hatred for God's people. Now we see it in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul is on his way to persecute the church of the Lord Jesus, and the resurrected Christ appears to him on the road to Damascus. Do you remember his question to Saul? Saul, why do you persecute me? Not my church, not my people, but Saul, why do you persecute me? The psalmist is crying for help because God's enemies are necessarily going to hate God's people. And a hatred for the Lord Jesus, a hatred for the triune God, is going to necessarily mean persecution for God's people. And so in verse 5, we read that there is a conspiracy. That there is this very unlikely uh, league of conspirators that gathers together. And note the language that's used in verse 5. Against you they make a covenant. The psalmist is getting, he's getting a little, like this is a little cheeky. What he's laying out for us is a scenario in which there are now dueling covenants. There is God with the covenant promises that he has made to his people on one hand. And then there is this league of nations that have gathered together those who are conspiring against God, conspiring against his people, and they also have made a covenant. So now the question is this, whose covenant is going to win? Who really has the authority? Who is sovereign? God or the nations? Who's going to win in the end? God or God's enemies? And it's quite the rogues gallery of enemies. Look at verse 6. You have the Edomites. You have the Ishmaelites. You have Moab, the Hagrites. You have Gebal, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Ashur or uh, Assyria has also joined them. They are the strong arm of the children of Lot. It's interesting, as Asaph talks about the enemies of God's people, 
Uh, there are nine of them. They are geographically surrounded, and some of them are old enemies. If you've read through the Old Testament, you know the Philistines are an old and ancient enemy of God's people. In fact, it's the Philistine giant Goliath that David slays. It's the Philistines who troubled the very first king of Israel, King Saul, all the days of his rule and reign. But the troubling thing about this isn't just that the enemies are old, and so therefore known. But some of these enemies have come from within. Now, in case we miss the fact that in verse 6, the Moabites are mentioned, and in verse 7, the Ammonites are mentioned, the psalmist reminds us that these are the strong arm of the children of Lot. Lot, you might recall, was the nephew of Abraham. And when it became clear that Abraham's herds and flocks and Lot's herds and flocks could not exist together, God says, hey, listen, you need to do something about this. And Abraham says, that's fine. I'll tell you what, Lot, uh, you pick where you want to go, and and it's fine. We'll, we'll just divide, and we'll call it good. We're family. I don't want there to be strife between us. Lot, foolishly, in a way that absolutely shocks and offends our African brethren, uh, Lot, chooses the best land for himself instead of deferring to his uncle. And so our African brothers know right away how this story is going to end because Lot does this absolutely unforgivable thing very early on in the story. So it's not a shock to us when we find Lot now living in Sodom, Lot being surrounded by all that goes on. It's not a shock to us when we get to Genesis chapter 19 and we learn that Lot's two daughters realizing that no man's going to want anything to do with them, decide to get Lot drunk, and when they get him drunk on two successive nights, uh, there are nights of incest, and the Ammonites and the Moabites come out of that drunken, incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. But the enemies, or some of the enemies, have come from within. Lot had access to all the covenant promises that God made to Abraham. Lot, like the rest of Abraham's household, underwent the covenant sign of circumcision. Now, we don't want to be too hard on Lot. The New Testament, in the end, does say good things about him. But the enemies aren't just those who are old enemies from without. Some of the enemies have come from within. I wonder, as we think about our situation as the church in 21st century America, and as we uh, make the rather obvious conclusion that just as God's people were surrounded by their enemies, uh, we too find ourselves in many ways in the moment in which we are living surrounded by our enemies, folks who wish to tell us that right is wrong and uh, that which is wrong is actually right. And to let us know just how wrong-headed and uh, awful we are. Nonetheless, I wonder as we are confronted with this situation, I wonder if we are crying out for help to the right place. 
I'm glad we live where we live. I'm glad that we live in a democracy. I'm glad that we have all the things that accompany living in a democratic republic. But I wonder if one of the issues with God's people in the present moment is that we are crying out to the wrong place first and then wondering why, when crying out to the wrong place does not serve us well, we then wonder why it is the Lord has abandoned us. He hasn't. I just wonder if we've actually asked him to do what the psalmist asked God to do in Psalm 83. Well, the psalmist then encourages both his readers and us by calling us to remember. They're surrounded by their enemies. Some of their enemies are ancient. Some of them have come from within. And now the psalmist, beginning in verse 9, calls on God's people to remember. He calls on God to remember. Not as though God is forgotten, but certainly God's people are prone to forget. It's why the one command that occurs most often in the Scripture is the command to remember. Remember. We are horribly forgetful people as human beings. And so now he gives them God's greatest hits, which not surprisingly come out of the book of Judges. In fact, all that he's going to mention comes from Judges chapter 4 through chapter 7. Now, that's important to note, because as we talk about Midian, and as we talk about Sisera and Jabin, let's understand that the book of Judges is not a high point in the life of God's people. In fact, the theme that occurs over and over again in the book of Judges is, there was no king in the land, and so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So friends, let's understand that God's deliverance of his people is not in that sense tied to their faithfulness. They are not being faithful. This is not a high point in Israel's life. And yet, in spite of that, God is still faithful. So we learn of Midian. By the way, if you grew up in Sunday school and you sang the song about Gideon having the Lord, you know that he won the fight with the Midianites because Gideon had the Lord. Or one of my own favorites. In fact, uh, again, when I was doing youth ministry, I would use this to teach our incoming seventh graders. Uh, we did a class. Uh, we called it Herman Who, uh, which was hermeneutics. And we were trying to help them understand how to read the Bible. And there are some great stories in the Bible. And so one of the stories that we would use, and in particular middle school, middle school girls loved, uh, was the story of uh, Jael and Sisera. Sisera is the commander who's listed here for us in verse 9. Uh, Sisera was a foreign commander. He was a Midianite who was oppressing God's people. And the Lord raises up a judge and says to the judge, Hey, it's great. You're going to deliver your people from Midian. And he goes, Yeah, I don't know. And so he goes to the prophetess Deborah. And Deborah says, No, it's going to happen. Don't worry. God's going to do it. But by the way, uh, because you doubt the Lord, here's what's going to happen. Uh, your enemy is going to be delivered not into your hand, but to the hand of a woman. And so Israel joins the battle 
with the Midianites. They begin to defeat them. Sisera does what every great military commander has always done throughout the ages. He runs away. And as he runs away, he's tired and exhausted. He ends up at the tent that is, uh, that is uh, owned by Jael. Jael says, hey, come on inside. You're tired. You just got the snot beat out of you. I'm paraphrasing now. You just got the snot beat out of you. Come on in. Have some milk. Take a nap. So he does. And the Bible then tells us while he's laying there fast asleep, she grabs a mallet and a sharp wooden tent peg and drives it through the side of his head and pins him to the ground and kills him thus delivering Israel from their enemies. It's a great story. Middle school girls love it. I won't venture why they love it, but they love it. It's a great way to teach kids, hey, there's these great stories in the Bible we might want to pay attention to. them. God is faithful to his people. They're not faithful to him, but he's faithful to them. And so the psalmist goes through and says, listen, remember Midian, remember Sisera, remember Jabin, remember these people who became as dung for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, their princes like Zeba and Zilmunna, who said, let us take possession for ourselves of the pastures of God. This is not the first time that God's people have been surrounded. It's not the first time. That God's people have been confronted with an enemy that is too great for them. Friends, we need to remember. And one of the reasons we need to remember is not just because the Bible commands us to do so. We need to remember because that's what the Lord Jesus did. Keep your finger in Psalm 83, but turn with me to Psalm 22. We looked at this Psalm, the third summer that we were doing this and right away we would say that this is a psalm that is explicitly messianic for the opening words of psalm 22 we know that jesus speaks on the cross so let's read it my god my god why have you forsaken me why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot sherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. 
A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Now let's stop right there. That is in every way a very vivid description of what's going to happen to the Lord Jesus when he was crucified. He uses those very words. The gospel writers use those very words. The words of verse 16 through verse 18. This is Jesus' description of what is going to happen to him on the cross. But we need to continue on. You see, we remember, not just for this sense of nostalgia, but we need to remember, because remembering reminds us of God's redemptive and salvific work. Let's read verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. See, it isn't just that Jesus in Psalm 22 is telling us of his crucifixion. But beginning in verse 19, he wants us to remember because he wants us to know of his confidence in the fact that God the Father is going to keep his word and resurrect God the Son from the dead. We don't remember just because we're forgetful, and we don't remember uh, just because uh, we have this sort of twisted sense of nostalgia. But the Bible calls us to remember because it wants us to understand that God is always faithful. And because he's always faithful, he's going to keep his covenant promises. So the enemies of God and the enemies of his people can make all the covenants they want. They're not him. God alone is faithful. God alone is able to save. And we forget that all the time. We walk around with an attitude that tells God, I need you to prove yourself yet again. I don't think you're faithful. God, I don't think you can do that thing that you promised to do. And yes, I know, I can look at my Bible and I can read cool stories like Jael and Sisera. And I can understand that Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in verses 16 to 18 of Psalm 22, it explains exactly what was going to happen to him. And I know that you resurrected your son Jesus from the dead, but God, I don't trust you enough that you'll actually keep your word. May God forgive us. And may we remember. Thirdly, the psalmist in Psalm 83 points us towards something. He points us to what the prophets are going to call the day of the Lord. Paul will pick up on the same language. And it's what we're calling this morning the last great victory. 
when I was in seminary, um, my one of my brothers-in-law was concerned that I was just reading uh, theology nerd books all the time, which was true. And so whenever Andre would draw my name for Christmas, he would seek to get me something that was not fluff, but something that wasn't heavy theology and I could just read for fun. And so one year he got me this wonderful book entitled The Last Great Victory. It was a recount of the Allied victory at the end of World War II. And the, the argument of the book was, hey, now because of nuclear weapons and because of all the political entanglements, it's not really going to be possible again to have a victory that was as great and overwhelming, as resounding as the Allied victory at the end of World War II. Well, I'll let those of you who are better historians than I argue that thesis. But let's understand this. The Bible tells us that there will be one last great victory and that it will be God through his son Christ judging and exerting his rule and reign over the entire world. Meredith read it for us this morning. That the Lord Jesus is going to come again with his angels in flaming fire. And he's going to judge. And the second coming of Christ will be met in one of two ways. It will either be met with rejoicing and glorification by his people. Or it will be met with those who are going to despair at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when I watch the news, which, by the way, um, I, I think more and more is becoming a problematic statement. But when I watch the news or when I read uh, certain articles or if I read things in the Omaha World Herald or whatever, uh, I find myself more and more going, uh, yes, amen, come quickly, Lord Jesus, because I'm sick of all these stupid people and I'm ready for you to just nuke them. And so as I think about the last great victory, I find myself really needing to check my own response and my own heart to this. I find that I need to be much more like Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer and his wife opened an institute in Switzerland called Labrie. There were chores to be done every day. There was reading that would be done in the afternoon. And then they would have supper together. It was at a large table. And then after supper... Dishes would be cleared away, and it was basically time to ask Dr. Schaefer whatever you wanted to know, or he would talk about the reading that had been assigned that afternoon. And people who were at Labrie back in the day would say that sometimes those conversations would go to early in the morning. Uh, dinner would get over, they'd start talking, and they'd just be there literally for hours uh, discussing whatever it is that the topic was that evening. Uh, one, however, person visiting Labrie said there was one exception to that in their uh, two years that they were at Labrie. One evening, one of their colleagues asked Dr. Schaefer, but what about those who don't believe Jesus and his gospel? Schaefer stopped. He lowered his head. And he began to weep. End of conversation. Friends, note that the hard words of verse 17, let them be put to shame and dismayed forever, let them perish in disgrace, 
Those hard words are balanced by verse 18. That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. The psalmist prays and asks that God's will would be done, that the enemies of God will be put to shame and dismayed forever. Why? Because he wants them to know that God is the most high. Not because he's tired of them. Not because he's weary of them. Not because he's having a bad hair week and just wishes bad things on people. No. He prays that they will be put to shame and dismayed forever. Why? That they may know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the most high over all the earth. This morning, we come to the Lord's table and we are called to remember. Now, there's more going on at the table than merely just remembering. Uh, we're not in that sense. We're not sort of low church evangelicals. We actually do think that Christ is spiritually present in the supper. We think that God in his mercy is imparting God's is imparting grace to his people through the gifts that he gives us. But saying that there's more to the table than merely remembering doesn't mean that there's less to the table than merely remembering. And Paul reminds us in the New Testament that just as God the Father resurrected God the Son in power, so also we have that hope, we have that resurrection to look forward to. So we come to the table this morning and we remember. We remember that the God to whom we are to cry out to is faithful. We remember that he keeps his covenant promises that he is the Almighty. And we remember that he will defend those people with whom he is in a covenant relationship. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you for your faithfulness. And not just uh, the faithfulness that you show us, but we, we bless you this morning for the faithfulness that you showed uh, to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That when he went to the cross and cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not, it was not a cry of abject despair. But rather, it was your son remembering the promises that you made to your Messiah in the Psalms. Father, we pray also that we would be a people who remember. We pray that when we are confronted and surrounded by your enemies, who are also our enemies, that we would cry to you and that we would remember your faithfulness. And that we would remember that there is a day in which the Lord Jesus will return in glory and in judgment. And Father, and we, not, we pray that it's not something we would gloat about. But Father, we pray that we would understand it's for your glory. And it will demonstrate that you alone are the most high God.
We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.